Have you ever felt like that kid in the commercial? Like you're in a seasonal life where like everything you touch gets ruined. Um, can't be trusted around anything because you're going to break it. I, I had about 48 hours earlier this week where I started to feel like maybe we were sliding into a season like that. Um, last Sunday night, uh, about 10 p.m., I was sitting looking out the front window, and a police officer walked up around our van that was parked in the parking lot and toward the front door. And I went over to the front door, and I opened the door, and he said, somebody here call 911. And I said, oh, no, um, but have been aware that in the past there's a, there's a phone number that's associated with our address somehow. And the lines get crossed, and it calls 911, and cops show up. And so this was just another case of that where uh, the phantom 911 call. The next day, in an unrelated incident, my mower died on its fourth use. And took it back to Home Depot and said, it, it's, it's toast. Um, can I return it? She said, sure, just give me the receipt. I said, lost the receipt. She said, okay, well, did you, have, did you use a credit card? I said, yeah, we used a points card to, to pay for it. Give me the points card then. So I gave her the points card, and I said, oh, wait, wait. We had to get that closed a couple days ago because somebody stole the number and bought $600 of shoes online. And she just looked at me, and I realized that his Murphy's Law set in the Poindexter house this week because now I'm trying to return a lawnmower with a card that was shut off because somebody stole it to buy shoes. The lawnmower doesn't work after four days. And, you know, it's just starting to pile up, and you're thinking, uh-oh. Has the cloud come in over the, you know, rolled in over the Poindexter house? Well, fortunately, um, seemed like a, a 48-hour blip there. But we do go through times where circumstantially, it seems like everything is stacked against us. That's where we get the expression, when it rains, it pours. And we also have times spiritually where we aren't at our best. Now, some of you might be here this morning saying, I don't have spiritual highs and lows I've really never been of. It's just kind of, you know, never really put much of an effort in spiritually. I can't even believe that I'm here at a church on a Sunday morning. And maybe you believe that God doesn't like you right now because you've just never done much for him. Others of you may think that God is really mad at you right now because you have said yes to Jesus in the past. You've just kind of slid away, done your own thing for a while. You've been distant from him. You've been sinful or lazy in your spiritual life, and you feel or at least perceive a distance, a great distance between yourself and God. That's what this morning's about. We're continuing our series uh, talking through God's view of church, which consists of God's people. I promise you that God does not think of a building when he thinks of church. He thinks of his people, people who've said yes to Jesus. That's the church. And the Bible tells us that God sees a church like a husband sees a wife. We are God's crazy wife. Because you have to admit that if God says, you're my eternal spouse, then God has one crazy spouse. Because we do all sorts of crazy spiritual things at any given time. We're not all that trustworthy spiritually. So back to those seasons of brokenness. 
or for you who maybe never have been connected with Jesus or, or feel unwanted. When I do a wedding ceremony, knowing that God says you're my spouse, you're my wife, when I do a wedding ceremony, um, there's always uh, like vows, right? Those are the, the guts of the wedding ceremony, the, the, the heart of it all, the promises. And there's a part in all of those vows that says, I take you for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, right? That's a part of the deal. The idea is that the marriage is committed to enduring troubled times. What we're going to see in Scripture this morning is that the same is true of our marriage with God. He sees our seasons of interests and disinterest, of highs and lows, and He loves us no matter what. When we're a part of God's church, we're 100% forgiven all of the time. And like we said last week, God wants everybody in that kind of a relationship. So, uh, we're going to hang out in John chapter 4 a lot this morning. So if you want to go ahead, if you want to follow along, grab a Bible in front of you. Uh, fire up the smartphone Bible app, whatever. Uh, John chapter 4, we'll hang out there a little bit this morning. This is... Jesus and what is most likely the very beginning or, or toward the very beginning of his public ministry. <clears throat> the ragweed getting any of you these days? It's killing me. We're going to start in verse 5. So Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. A Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So it's important for us to see right here, she's lost sight of her value. Like she's labeling herself Samaritan woman. We'll talk about what that means later. But she definitely is surprised that a Jewish man would lower himself to her level. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave the well, who gave us the well, and drank from it himself, also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. And he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you're with now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Then I skip down to verse 25. 
The woman said, I know the Messiah called the Christ, God's anointed one, is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now, honestly, we could dissect John chapter 4, this amazing grace-oriented passage of Scripture, this gift from God to us. We could, we could take a year, and I mean this, we could easily take a year and dissect all the little nuances of grace and truth from John chapter 4. But this morning, I'm going to focus on two aspects, <clears throat> two main aspects from this story. First, the story is told so that the first century audience or the earliest hearers would identify with the spiritual condition and awareness of this woman. She had lost five husbands. Now, maybe some were from divorce. Maybe some were from death. You've got to remember that in that day and time, uh, sickness, conflict, accidents, wild animals, the flu... There was a lot more cause for young guys to die back in those days. And whether by death or by divorce, she had lost five husbands. How awful do you think she felt about herself? I mean, you'd have to look internally when you're going through husbands at that rate. And then... She was living with her boyfriend, and definitely in that ancient context, everybody would have seen that as sinful. Now, in those day and times, in fairness to the woman, as a woman in the ancient world, you either got married, lived with your parents, or there was like prostitution. You didn't have many options to sustain your life. So at the very least, maybe she was just living with this guy to take care of her. Because she had to. Regardless, she's in this situation. It would have been seen as sinful by everybody, including herself. She couldn't possibly be proud of her situation. And so part of what we need to understand to appreciate this passage is that she understood and they understood that she was in a very low place spiritually. Plus, she was a Samaritan, despised by the Jews. Impurity in their faith. And she was aware of this as she addressed Jesus. And it's really important that we identify with her and her awareness of her situation because we are so darn hard on ourselves, right? I think most people, most level-headed people, we want to do well. We try hard. We want to get it right. We recommit every night before we go to bed. But we're very aware that we just keep going back and doing things that we don't want to do. We mess it up. And we can beat ourselves up for years over things that we do. We have those things where, oh man, I just wish that I could get this out of my life. Or, oh, I wish I had never done that. And we just, we struggle to find peace and acceptance in who God, and how God sees us because we're aware of our brokenness. And so knowing that this woman would have constantly felt like a spiritual reject, like God's hacky sack, is very important for us to understand this passage. 
I know that there are some of you who are guided through life by guilt and shame, which leads to cynicism and sarcasm and frustration. I was reading the other day about Hall of Fame quarterback Troy Aikman, who played for the Dallas Cowboys. I hate the Cowboys. (laughs) Mid-90s, they were... They were a great team. And, and that was his first Super Bowl championship. Right there, picture from... And, and you think about... Talk about, you know, on top of the world. You're America's team. You win the Super Bowl. You're the quarterback. All the work. All the planning. All the preparation. And, and you win. Moments after that picture was taken... While the rest of his team is out tearing it up, celebrating out on the town, celebrating this incredible moment, Troy Aikman is in his hotel room sulking, asking himself the question, now what? Like, I, I'm, I know what it's like to feel bad about myself for no good reason. I'm pretty good at that. But that's Hall of Fame right there. When, when, when you can't, when you're down on yourself because you just achieved the thing and now you don't know what's next. I mean, Eeyore would be jealous of that kind of sulking, right? And I think for so many of us, it's like the good in life just can't quite trump the bad in life. And we walk through life like that as we think about our relationship with God. So imagine how this woman must have felt. Does God even care? Now for the second aspect of the story. The first aspect is is identifying with this woman's low plight, her awareness of her low spiritual condition. And then we're going to see that Jesus is aware of it all. And he still honors her. Here's what I love about this story. Jesus could have said, like he could have gone like David Blaine on her and, and, and said like, pick a number between 1 and 500. And, and, and she's like, okay, I got it. I got it. He says, 438. She's like, whoa. I can see you're a prophet. Like he could have just, you know, done something like that that only, that was like benign from the life condition and still proved that he knew everything. But instead he chose to link his awareness with her spiritual condition. It's like he wanted her to know, I know everything, and the thing that I'm going to choose is I know that you got this stuff in your life, and I'm going to honor you anyway. I'm going to talk with you anyway. He calls out her worth. In that conversation, he also tells her plainly, and this is very significant, Jesus did not go around saying, hey, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, this guy right here. He didn't tell people that. In fact, sometimes people figured it out, he said, don't tell anybody. So there is great significance that Jesus picks the Samaritan woman that any other Jewish man would have never associated with, that any other spiritual leader would have ever associated with. And he says, I am going to, full disclosure here, give you my name, my identity. Calls out her worth. 
And she must have left that day thinking, even in the spiritual mess of my life, he knows me. He sees me. He honors me. No doubt, life-changing moment for this woman. And that's the message of John 4 and the rest of the Bible. When we turn to Jesus, and we can always turn to Jesus, God sees past our shortcomings and loves us like a wife. He chooses us as a forever companion. So I picked a few scriptures, and there are hundreds. But I picked a few scriptures that talk about God seeing past our shortcomings. So just, you know, put these deep in your psyche. Psalm 103, as far as east is from west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us, our sins from us. So east, infinitely far from west, right? The point is, this author, scripture is saying, as far as you can get from one place to another, that's how far our sins are when God looks at us. Jeremiah 31, 34, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And I always think about uh, Gene Smith when I read that because Gene says uh, that God is the most forgetful being in the universe, which initially is one of those shock statements that sounds uh, blasphemous, but the truth is, if God is forgetting about just my sin. That's a forgetful being, to be able to truly see me and not remember my long list. But that's the Word of God. And that's what leads Paul in Philippians 3 to say, and this is a pretty good mantra for life if we're going to get life God's way. Here's one thing I do. I forget what is behind. Strain toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. So he doesn't say, I think about how awful of a person I was and let that distance me from God. I disqualify myself from everything because I was that guy. He says, no, I forget about that. I press on. Through God's grace, we must never allow ourselves to be defined by our past. As God's forever bride, we must define ourselves by our future with him and not our earthly mistakes. See, the issue in our marriage with God has never been whether or not God could get past the things that we've done, our low points. The issue, unfortunately, is whether we can get past the things we've done and whether we can let other people forget about the things that they've done. So I've got a video, for, a video for you to watch. This is uh, Michelle Fetty's story. Uh, it centers around divorce. I know divorce is something that is central to some of you, and I know that it can be very, very painful. Um, but let it represent all sorts of things that maybe get in the way of, of, of you and how you think God sees you. Let's learn from her, and then we'll wrap up. So thank you for sharing your story, Michelle. I, um, I want to frame up here. Um, when, when we, I picked divorce because divorce is 
especially uh, painful. And, 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 and so we don't want to, as we learn to see ourselves the way God sees us, we don't want to airbrush and we don't want to tattoo. And here, so here's what I mean. Uh, if we look at divorce, um, now God, God says, I hate divorce. That's in the Old Testament of the Bible. Um, some people, and I don't want to get hung up on this, but um, uh, the, the exception is made in Scripture for married, marital unfaithfulness. Some people believe, some people study the Bible and believe that divorce is not sinful itself. It's divorce and then remarriage, setting aside marital affair, which then makes that okay. Other people believe that divorce itself is sinful, and they study the Bible. So the Bible uh, can be interpreted one of two ways with, with that, but regardless, it's, it, divorce is devastating. And I've talked to many people who, it's just, does, does God still love me? Can I still go to heaven? Any given thing, there are all kinds of different things like that, or just generally, I just feel lousy about my spiritual efforts, okay? The, the, you know what I'm talking about here. There's an airbrush that says, oh, no big deal. You know, we'll just kind of buff it out. And it wasn't really like you started to justify it. That's not what we're talking about here. Jesus didn't justify anything in this woman's life that he spoke with. The Bible doesn't ever tell us to justify or minimize the presence and sin of sin in our life. It, it's devastating. And absolutely it distances ourselves from God. It produces guilt and all kinds of things like that, all kinds of consequences. So we're not airbrushing sin out, but we're also not tattooing it. Because I think a lot of us have a tendency to tattoo it or treat it like a scar. It's just forever there as a part of our spiritual flesh. Like, I did that thing. And I know that I'm not going to be okay with God. But nothing could be further from the truth in Scripture. We're presented as God's bride. That means God chooses us for better, for worse, in good times and in bad, in the highs and in the lows. Just like a marriage, the healthiest place to live from is to do our best to honor God, always. We don't take advantage of his grace. But when we fail, we confess, at least to God, hopefully to other Christians too, because the Bible says that's the path to the best kind of restoration and healing and cleansing. And then we receive his grace. We see ourselves as forgiven and restored. Now, I want to close. uh, In the news, you may have seen this story. This is uh, Chloe Smith from Georgia. This happened just last month, I think. Late July, mid-August, somewhere in there. Uh, Chloe is out walking with, with her dad. And they walk by this, this pile of trash. And I just, I, This is the kind of thing I think Jesus would have used to illustrate what we're talking through this morning. They walk by this pile of trash, and Chloe, being seven years old... Uh, looks at things differently than we do. She sees this, this shiny thing in this pile of trash. And because she's with her dad, she's allowed to dig through the trash. You know, she was with her mom. <clears throat> Can't do things like that. Well, she gets in this pile of trash and, and she pulls out this shiny, it's, a, it's an Olympic gold medal that's there in this pile of trash from the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. 
It was, but it belonged to Joe Jacoby. That's Joe Jacoby. He won it. Uh, he won the medal in in some kind of a canoeing slalom race event. And so that's his that's his gold medal, probably his most prized possession. And it was stolen out of his car a month ago. And the person obviously felt the heat and just ditched it in the trash. And Chloe was able to see through that pile of trash and find that treasure there. And, and I just, I think that's so symbolic of, of, of who we are in it. And God says, you're my wife. I, I take you to be my wife in good times and bad, my eternal companion. I choose you. But we're well aware of the trash that just we let cover our life. And we do. We trash that treasure with all sorts of sin and bad decisions. And, and God still sees through and sees something of immeasurable worth. And it's really important, if we're going to get this thing right as God's church, that we look at ourselves and we never lose sight of our immeasurable eternal worth that nothing can trash because of Jesus. And we find worth in ourselves, And we call out that worth. And then we live like Jesus. And we see others in the midst of the trash of life. And we call out their eternal worth. So we're going to close today with communion. And, and this is a ritual that God set in motion, Jesus set in motion 2,000 years ago. It's a symbolic wedding celebration in many ways. Um, we'll do this at the eternal wedding ceremony when we're united with God forevermore. This is just a symbolic kind of foreshadowing of that. Jesus said, I want you to get together. And we're all going to sit at this table together. And I want you to take a piece of bread, he said. And, and this is my body that was broken on the cross as a punishment for your sin. And he said, now drink this uh, juice or wine. And remember my blood that's shed on the cross as a payment once and for all for your sin." And it's because that was all prepaid by Jesus that we're right with God. So we sit here not because we've earned it, but because Jesus paid the price for us. So as we take this meal, I just want you to reflect on your eternal worth and the price it took to make us right with God forever. Father, we come to your table knowing, like that woman at the well who you interacted with, uh, knowing that we have cause for shame and guilt, knowing that, that there is just no way that we are worthy of you to sit with us and talk with us, to serve us or be served by us. We're here for one reason together, because you paved the way, you paid the price. And you did that because you love us. So we sit here and we see our worth, which comes completely because you 
love us and we celebrate that worth and we celebrate you and our friendship with you that will last for all eternity. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.